I live in this place uh, called Utah that is thriving because we have this great free market economy, which is creating jobs and opportunity. And we have these robust institutions of civil society where we have religious organizations, uh, civic groups, that uh, businesses that give back to the community, the kind of people you work with all the time, Charles, uh, that make community happen. And because of that, you know, we're in this thriving place. Uh, someone born into poverty or someone who falls into poverty in Utah has a better chance of not just getting out of poverty, but making it into the middle class than anywhere else in the world. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing. My guest today is Boyd Matheson. Boyd is opinion editor and head of strategic research at Deseret News, where he writes a weekly column and hosts a radio show and podcast. Prior to this role, he was president of the Sutherland Institute, a highly respected think tank advancing constitutional values of faith, family, and freedom. And he also was chief of staff for the U.S. Senator Mike Lee. Boyd was involved in many of the most critical issues facing our nation and led the senator's idea factor in Capitol Hill, where great ideas were free to anyone looking to help the country. Boyd is also an experienced communication strategist, having worked two decades with political and corporate leaders to advance their message. That is why I listen to what Boyd has to say. He is one of those rare individuals that worked in the private and public sector and now shares his views in the media. He has a way of looking at problems from all sides and coming up with practical ways to solve problems. I recently sat down with Boyd to talk about how we the people are in the driver's seat and not the politicians in Washington. Boyd, thanks so much for being on my show. I greatly appreciate it, man. Hey, Charles. Great to be with you today. Okay, Boyd, you are prolific. I don't know how, how do you, how do you sit down every day as opinion editor and think of ideas? I know you're looking at the beautiful uh, Wastek Mountains in Utah and everything looks great out there and you got a baseball bat for, I guess, hitting people and get them away from you when you're thinking, but how do you come up with ideas? You know, to me, the, the real challenge is, is learning to be still. Uh, we live in such a, uh, a rat race and chase of a world uh, that often we find ourselves, uh, you know, so scattered. Uh, the biggest challenge for me is learning to slow down enough uh, so that I can actually think. Uh, and a lot of us could use a, a little more of that time to, to ponder and reflect. And of course, uh, looking out the, the window here is, uh, is not a bad place for me to start. Uh, but I actually find that the early morning hours uh, are the best. And I'll actually try to write often before I check the news of the day. Uh, even though that often drives a lot of our topics and a lot of the things that I want to weigh in on, uh, it's actually pushing all of that away, creating enough space. Uh, I, I found that life actually happens in the in-between stuff. Uh, it's the uh, it's the it's the pause in between the words. It's the space in between the music. Uh, all of those things are where we actually find inspiration and we we find the things that I think matter most in the world. So your article comes out how often? Once a week. Uh, I have one main column that I do a week. I also write some editorials and then uh, just kind of weigh in uh, whenever we're ready to weigh in on something. <laughs> Love it. You know, there's one thing that I was looking through some of your articles, and you've written, gosh, I don't know how many articles over the years. Well, your newspaper, right, is what, 150, 160 years old or something? 170 years old, 170. yeah. It's uh, been around. It was uh, interesting. Right outside of my office, I actually have a, a replica of the wrought iron press that they dragged across the American plains uh, back in the 1850s. And uh, they started here with a, a weekly circulation and, uh, and a really interesting mission, too. 
uh, even back then, here they are in this outpost in the middle of nowhere, and they're talking about, we are going to weigh in and write about things national and international, uh, and weigh in on everything from, from science to the arts to business to politics, and uh, still going at it today. You know, uh, there's one article I saw recently. I don't remember when you wrote it, maybe a couple of weeks ago. And this is something that uh, I think it was really spot on, really spot on. The title of the article was How Oprah, a Printing Press, and Some Red Pen Show Who's Responsible for the Truth. And I want to quote what you wrote here because this is really good stuff. And I hear this so many times, it just boils my blood. In the age of fake news, confirmation bias, social media, echo chambers, alternate facts, and straight-up lies, the looming question for me is who is responsible for truth? What the heck's going on in this country? Yeah, sadly, there are a lot, uh, a lot of politicians, a lot of the media who aren't interested in the truth, or they're not introduced, interested in being responsible for the truth. And uh, I actually shared in the piece uh, an experience I had. I knew I wanted to write about truth uh, in the middle of everything that you just described, Charles. And uh, so I, I had told my assistant editor, Christian Sager, I said, hey, I'm going to write about truth this week. And it would just turn into one of those weeks that it was just meeting after meeting, crisis after crisis, and maybe a little bit of procrastination on my part. Uh, got to the day that I, my page was due, column was due, I kept putting it off. I ended up uh, having to, to guest host a, a national show. And so I just told Christian, my editor just said, hey, just save me a spot at the bottom of the page. I'll fill it. And uh, it got to be late, five o'clock came and he, he brought me the proofs around for the day to check. And, and there at the bottom was my, my mug, my picture, uh, a fake headline. Uh, and then he just written in red ink, he said, the truth will be written here. <laughs> and uh, it really was the answer to my question of who's responsible for the truth. I'm responsible for the truth. We're all responsible for the truth. And uh, we can't rely on anyone else to, to do that. It, it has to begin with each of us individually. So hasn't it always been that when the media portrayed truth or the facts, right? All the, all the, the Wall Street, the uh, New York Times, uh, all the news that's fit to print, but that has been changed so many times over the years, all the news that they feel is fit to print. What, what, what is the media supposed to be doing here? Was it ever, quote unquote, truthful? Wasn't it always someone's opinion or a political organ of the Democrats or the Republicans or the Whigs or, or, or the Federalists that were throwing out, and I hate to use this term because it's so terrible, their truth? Yes, uh, and that's, that's what we have to be careful of. The difference between their truth, my truth, and the truth, uh, I think, is, is the real test. And, and, of course, there's always been a bias within media organizations. There have always been people who have been trying to influence. And, and that's okay, too. That's not a problem. Uh, but what we have to do is recognize what it is. And we, we have to really, the, I think one of the real challenges of our day is, is that so many of those things have just become blended together. So you can't tell where real reporting begins or ends and where opinion begins and where in-depth analysis comes. Uh, and so it, it really is incumbent upon all of us to, to dig a little deeper, to dig past the headlines for sure. Uh, I, I had a woman call, uh, call me one time when I was at the Sutherland Institute uh, and she was just screaming about something she had read in, in another paper uh, about uh, the Bears Ears, a, a big uh, public lands issue here in the state of Utah. And she just was screaming, you know, last straw, I can't take it anymore. 
uh, you know, how in the world can, you know, President Trump do this to build a, a golf course on this land? And uh, this land looks like Mars. I mean, there's no way anybody, not even President Trump, could build a golf course on the Bears' ears. Uh, but she was just, I think she had mastered circular breathing because she just yelled for about 10 minutes. And uh, so finally, I, I pulled up on the screen the article she was referring. And in big black letters, I mean, this big, it said, the following is not news. This is satire. And so the whole article, it was beautifully written. Uh, Robert Gerke wrote it for the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, great writing. And it was hilarious. Uh, but the only thing she had done was she had her bias going in. She read the headline. She read the first sentence. And confirmation bias uh, kicked in. Uh, and that uh, set her on her way. I, I could never convince her that it really wasn't true and that she should go out to the Bears' ears and explore if a golf course could be built because <laughs> there's just there's no way. But, wasn't, uh, but it, it also leads to another important thing, Charles, and, and that is this whole idea of I think one of the biggest challenges we have to the truth is instant certainty. Instant certainty is the enemy of truth. It's also the enemy of trust. Uh, because, again, the news cycles are going so fast, everyone thinks they have to immediately do it. And how many times do we find out that initial reporting was wrong? Uh, but again, we do it individually as well. Learning to suspend judgment, uh, especially with a spouse or a child, uh, and actually listen, listen better, listen different, uh, that will get us to the truth and that will actually build the trust we need in families, in neighborhoods, in communities, and in the country. Okay, so now the news cycle used to be, it was a 24-hour news cycle. Uh, papers had to hit their deadlines. It was one or two head cycles throughout the day. The television cycles were the 6 o'clock news. Life was pretty, well, the seven, 6 o'clock local, 7 o'clock national, New York Times. And it seemed to be, and it seems to me, and you're going to tell me how naive I am, or was, that there was some type of, 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 of not only civility, but some type of baseline of what was reportable, what was reportable, what could, if I saw it on the 7 o'clock news, or Walter Cronkite said it, I could trust somewhat. Now it seems, the news, it doesn't seem, the news cycle is 24-7. It's like a, a cannon of crap just being shot out every which way, 24 hours a day through Facebook, through Twitter, and all social media. How is an individual supposed to discern what's reality and what's fantasy? Yeah, it, it is. It's the great test of our time, I think. And, and it goes back to really where we started, Charles, that is learning to step back and step away uh, is often the best way to, to step up uh, and get a different view of things. Uh, if all we do is just continually ingest, 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 uh, we're going to be really bloated uh, and really overwhelmed. And, and often it leads us to actually disconnect from really important conversations that we need to have. Uh, so part of it is, is us individually making sure we're getting a variety of sources that we're not just getting into our own social media bubble uh, and hearing what we want to hear or what others want to serve up to us because they think that's what we want to hear. Checking sources, uh, going down, you know, looking at the facts, where does that go? Uh, and, and sometimes it's, it's just, it is that stepping away. Uh, one one of the things that I recommend everyone do is, is just do a, a power of one when it comes to your digital devices. Just take one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year and disconnect. Yep. Uh, and that'll change your world, I guarantee you. It'll yeah. change the way you look at news. It'll change the way you look at your neighbor. Uh, it'll change the way you look at your family and the people that you actually care about. Uh, but 
part of it is not trying to digest more or digest it faster uh, or get through it quicker. Uh, sometimes it's just disconnecting from it all so you can get some perspective. But what we really lack in the world today is reflective moments, is the, those moments in between uh, to actually get the perspective and, and a view from a, a little higher up. Uh, and that takes a little bit of effort and a little bit of work. It's, it's much easier to skim across the surface uh, and, and keep playing headline games and, and uh, clicking and, and chasing uh, those kinds of things uh, as it is to, to step back a little bit, take a, take a big deep breath and, and get some perspective. My fear in all this, and I've thought about this often, uh, I love history, read as much as I can about history and how easy it is to manipulate people, ma manipulate the masses. And uh, it's fortunately it's a fact, right? We, 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 we are built to have shortcuts in mind because our caveman ancestors couldn't spend time pondering if there was a bear in the woods. You know, with the time they thought about it, they were eaten. And those, that gene pool didn't survive, right? So our ancestors, we, we, we're, we're, we're the product of people who acted quickly on the little information that they had. My concern, and tell me if I'm wrong with this and tell me where I'm off base, and I hope you do, is... Any type of demagogue, any type of dictator, authoritarian could just find the right sound bites and pound the table in all our social media for a new cycle, which today is a day or two, three days, five days, until it becomes reality, then it becomes fact, then it becomes truth, and then it becomes whatever they want to do. Am I off the deep end on that? No, Charles. In fact, I think you uh, you raise, I think, one of the biggest issues of our day, uh, far more than a lot of our national security issues. Uh, as, as much as I will pound the table myself about national debt and, uh, and uh, the skyrocketing numbers there, uh, this artificial division uh, is so dangerous. Uh, we hear over and over how divided the country is. We're too divided. We're too divided. Uh, and it's simply not true. Dictators have used division as a way to maintain power for centuries. You know that as a student of history. Uh, and we're, we're seeing it in much more subtle ways uh, than we ever have. Uh, when I went back to, to Washington, D.C. as a chief of staff, uh, not as a political guy, but as a guy who'd spent a couple of decades doing business consulting, uh, I was amazed uh, at how little division there actually was. Uh, looked at something like uh, immigration. Uh, we always say that's a great dividing issue of our time. Well, it is for those who want to maintain the status quo of power, because as long as Congress or a president can convince us that we're too divided to deal with health care or immigration, it allows Congress to do nothing. It allows the outside organizations to raise hundreds of millions of dollars a year uh, and to use it as a divisive wedge issue for political campaigns. Uh, so if we go to this idea of immigration, I, I still remain convinced we could solve 94.5% of immigration in a single afternoon on the floor of the United States Senate and Congress because everyone agrees. Everybody knows we need a border. Everybody knows we need an entry exit system. Everyone knows we need to make legal immigration easier, more efficient, more effective. Uh, we need to know who comes in the country and who leaves the country. I mean, if Disneyland can tell me where my family is at any moment of time for three days in the park, surely the most powerful country in the world can figure out who comes in and who goes out. Uh, but both sides, both sides love to use that as a wedge issue. 
And, and here's the real problem, Charles, is that we have been conditioned to react inappropriately to those base emotions of angst, anger, fear, and frustration. Because again, it's how they raise money. Uh, I, I call it the shampoo bottle model. Uh, if you remember in the old days on your shampoo bottle, it said lather, rinse, repeat. repeat. It was like an endless cycle. <laughs> yeah, so you lather people up, you get them angry, you get them frustrated. You let them rinse that off with a nice $25 contribution, and then you repeat. And just like Pavlov's dog, we have been conditioned to respond inappropriately to those negative base emotions. And when people tell me that the country is so divided, I don't buy it. Uh, I have traveled this country top to bottom, left to right. And when you go into real neighborhoods, real communities, we are not that divided. Those in power want us to believe that because it gives them an excuse to do nothing and it ensures that the status quo of power remains. And the people with the power, the people with the influence continue to have it. How do we break this cycle? How do, how do we... So I get this beautiful email or great thing from a politician. And, and, I, and I, by the way, I, I, I can't believe, well, I can believe now, how many people actually think that Congressman so-and-so wrote them an individual letter. It's absolutely, it works, right? It's staggering. I guess because yeah. I'm from New York and I don't trust anybody or anything. You look at these things and one lady, when I was a money manager and we had clients uh, who were pretty accredited, they were pretty accredited investors. They were wealthy, intelligent people. And they go, I just got a letter from the president of Dreyfus Mutual Funds. And wow, this guy's really high up. Could you send it to me? And they said this back in the day, the mail sent it to me. And it was a form letter. It was a form letter signed in a different signature color of the president of Dreyfus. And this lady thought, who was worth several million dollars, thought that the president of Dreyfus was writing to her. And I guess it's working because politicians keep doing this. How, yeah. how do we break this cycle of keeping each, everyone against each other and fighting each other? And they keep stirring the pot. How do we break it? So amazingly, uh, like most things, it comes back to a, a we the people issue. Uh, we, we have to expect more, not less, uh, out of those that we elect and, and send back to Washington or into our state houses, for that matter. Uh, the sad reality is as much as we like to complain uh, about uh, our politicians, on a typical election cycle, about 92% of incumbents win re-election. Amazing, yeah. Uh, and so that, to me, says we're, uh, it, I, I call it the, uh, it, it's the old Dennis Rodman syndrome. You know, the, uh, the Chicago Bulls hated everything about Dennis Rodman when he played for the Detroit Pistons. They hated his hair, mm. his antics, his dirty play, his, you know, all of those things. And they hated him, detested him right up to the point he became their Dennis Rodman. <laughs> and even though they didn't like his antics and a lot of this, the sideshow stuff, they knew they were getting 19 rebounds, four block shots, three steals, and a guy that was going to wreak havoc on the other team's best player. Uh, and so a lot of times in politics, we have the, the Dennis Rodman syndrome where people are like, yeah, they're not the greatest, but hey, they're, they're, they're my guy or my gal. Uh, and so we, we tolerate it. Uh, and so part of it is, is we the people expecting more. Part of it also, and this is really critical, Charles, is that we have to recognize that the politicians in this country have almost never led this country. It's culture and community that lead and the politicians follow. Uh, you go back to the very beginning, Declaration of Independence, powerful document, important document, galvanizing document, but it was not a leading document. 
Uh, the Revolutionary War had been going for 18 months before the politicians uh, got around to putting it on paper, uh, but it was very important. Uh, look at Jackie Robinson, 1947, he breaks the color barrier in Major League Baseball. 17 years later, Congress gets around to doing meaningful civil rights legislation. And so one of the things that we, the people, have to recognize is that we actually lead and the politicians follow. I think if we all recognize that and acted from a position of strength rather than from a position of weakness, looking to Washington to solve our problems, uh, it's, it's all about community and culture. It, it's one of the reasons why I can be really pessimistic about some of our politics in the country, uh, but I have never been more bullish on the future of the country uh, because I've been in neighborhoods, I've been in communities, I've seen, I live in this place uh, called Utah that is thriving because we have this great free market economy, which is creating jobs and opportunity. And we have these robust institutions of civil society where we have religious organizations, uh, civic groups, that uh, businesses that give back to the community, the kind of people you work with all the time, Charles, uh, that make community happen. And because of that, you know, we're in this thriving place. Uh, someone born into poverty or someone who falls into poverty in Utah has a better chance of not just getting out of poverty, but making it into the middle class than anywhere else in the world. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing. And it's because of those dynamics. It's not because of our politics. And it's not even just because of any specific faith. Uh, it's because of all of those dynamics as a laboratory of democracy. Uh, when that happens, great things happen and society rises and, and people can live their version of the American dream. Why, why is that ethos confined or why do you see it thriving in Utah where it's not thriving in, let's say, Oregon or California? Well, part of it is, again, this belief that it's not about the government uh, making things happen. It's about individuals. And again, if you have a free market economy that has a government that is light touch in terms of regulation, uh, you've, you've got uh, entrepreneurs and uh, tech companies you know, flocking to Utah because it's a great place to work and do business. But then you have these great communities and uh, people get that. Uh, and, and so it's, it's part of being part of something bigger than yourself. And uh, in Utah, again, as this laboratory of democracy, uh, it's, it's working. And, uh, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, those, uh, those pioneers that, that trekked across the American plains to get out to this middle of nowhere basin, uh, they, they had this bigger vision that, hey, we can, we can be not just a crossroads to the West, but a crossroads to the world. And, uh, and right now you've, you've got, uh, as I mentioned, uh, you've got tech companies that are coming here, a Silicon Slopes that's really thriving. Inland Port is coming online uh, that will make us a, a real hub, a new international airport. We have an educated workforce, uh, more languages spoken here than just about anywhere. Uh, so it's really well positioned, I think, to lead out as the pandemic uh, moves along. Uh, this will really be a uh, crossroads to the world. Yeah, no, uh, you, you know, you're, you're spot on. You look at California now with the brain drain because of what's happening there. People are moving to Texas. People are moving to Nashville, Tennessee. Look at New York. Uh, Governor Cuomo was saying that all he does is spend his time, I don't really believe this, but telling people to stay, you know, out in the Hamptons. There's no reason to stay. They're raising taxes. The city's falling to crap. There is riots in the streets. There's a progressive socialist mayor who is ruling uh, by fiat. Uh, and money travels, and the rich people are the most mobile in society, so they leave. And yeah. they're going to, you know, we, we think, we don't, these politicians think that they have a, a captive audience, and they don't really have a captive audience. They have a very transitory audience. People are going to flock to the place where they're the freest and where they can start businesses. 
and where they yeah. could live with dignity. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right, Charles. And, uh, and it's the it's the one thing, if, if there was one message I could give to every American today, it would be function from a position of strength. Uh, as you said, Americans are mobile uh, and not just the wealthy. Uh, almost anybody can pick up and, and move to another place uh, and and thrive. Well, well look, and, what, what, what builds what builds the North, uh, you know, in the early 1900s is the great migration of African-Americans to northern cities. The South just got rid of them. You know, they don't want to be sharecroppers anymore. That was it. They were being uh, subjugated. They were being abused. They were being like, killed and lynched. All right, it moves. And the, I think the biggest migration, this, I think the, I don't think the world, but I think it was the country, but I think it's pretty much in the world, was uh, after the Great Depression, right before about World War II, we had an amazing shift of population across a large air and less, a massive uh, area. I think I was reading somewhere that's one of the largest migrations of time. I don't know how many tens of millions of people. But yeah, it, it, um, I, I think a lot of people, and maybe if I'm, maybe I'm wrong and I've say, it's by saying a lot, I already screwed myself because generalizations are terrible. But um, it seems to me, and correct me, it, give me, I want your opinion on this. It seems to be many people have forgotten that politicians work for us. We don't work for them. They're temp workers. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it goes back to this idea that we have to function from a position of strength, not from a position of weakness. OK, so, uh, so how, many, do, how do we get more Americans to I'll give you one quick example. There was a, a congressman brought to our community and he was one. I'm not going to mention his name. He just he was a one term congressman. A Democrat came in a Republican slight area and did the stupidest thing in the world. He voted for impeachment. And his constituency is clearly Republican and more conservative leaning. It was brought in order to raise money. And I looked at him, I said, Congressman, you disappointed us. He said, how so? I said, how could you do this? You know, we finally have a president who is pro-business, understands the Mideast better than anybody has understood it and is going to make peace. This was back before there was the Abraham Accords. Uh, and the economy is thriving. Say what you want about the man. This is a partisan lynching. And Pelosi basically said she's not going to do this unless everyone's on board. And you went ahead and voted for impeachment. Tell me how that makes sense. That I voted with my conscience. I said, well, in two more, in just odd thing, you're going to be out of business. You're going to have to find another job. And he looked at me pretty smug and said, we'll see. And he's out of work. He's out yeah. of work. We, we voted him out. It's like hiring a warehouse manager. The guy just came late every day. You're gone. Why? Don't more Americans feel that way about their politicians? Why are we not leading from where we are instead of trying to have them tell us what to do? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a couple of parts to that that I think are, are really critical. One is that functioning from a position of weakness. We, we have been, uh, th this is the classic, uh, what the politicians do to us. They, they say, you know, the most important right you have is your right to vote. And you can vote however you want, but, if you don't vote for me, Armageddon. you're going to lose power. Armageddon. You're going to lose influence. Armageddon. <laughs> exactly. Uh, everything in you know, the sky is going to fall and, uh, and all the problems. Uh, and some Americans buy into that and say, oh, my gosh, well, I better, I better reelect so-and-so uh, because they're going to save me or they're going to protect me or they have my best interest in mind. Uh, and so, there's again, it's part of that conditioning that uh, is really killing us as a country. Uh, and, and the American people have the power. They have the power. But we've been convinced, and sometimes we've convinced ourselves that there's nothing we can do. Can't fight City Hall, can't change Washington, 
Uh, we could do it in a heartbeat uh, if the American people would just recognize where the power lies. We're, we're always looking for the power. Uh, and the reality is, is we have it and we just have to exercise it. We have to own it and we have to be accountable for what we do uh, and creating that. I mean, all of the things that made our country extraordinary are the things that are most threatened right now. Uh, my big, one of my biggest worries for the country, uh, and you know this from your, your business experience, is the, the most dangerous day in the life of an organization is the day you do well. It's the day you hit number one. It's the day you're in the press. It's the day you go uh, live on Wall Street. Uh, and what we have to recognize is that we're trying to do something in this country that's never been done before. We're trying to become one of the first societies ever to outlive their own success. And you can go through Mayan empire, Egyptian, Romans, British, on you know through the list. And they these societies have achieved extraordinary heights. And then what happened? They got comfortable. They rested on their laurels. They started doing the minimum standard. They started to coddle uh, rather than challenge each other. And you get this mediocrity is the number one killer. Mediocrity is the number one killer of any business. It's the number one killer of any community. On a personal level, it is the number one killer of any relationship. The moment you start doing the minimum standard, you just start doing the checkbox stuff. Uh, that's the beginning of the end of a business. It's also the beginning of the end of a marriage uh, or a relationship with a child or a friend. And it's the same in the country. Uh, we have got to get back to excellence as the order of the day. Uh, and if we don't, everything else is kind of window dressing in the end. Uh, if we have universities that just put out mediocre students that are you know, worried about being offended about someone challenging their thinking, uh, that's not helping us strive for excellence. If but we get comfortable. Do you see us, do you see us at, at, at that stage? Are we, are we at mediocrity now? Are we, are we just you know, basically checking the boxes? There, there, are, there are pockets to, to be sure. And, and there are institutions that are, that are fostering that and nurturing that. I, I think our higher education uh, in general uh, has been on that. I mean, they're, they're using the same model from the 1700s. Uh, and if it weren't for the pandemic, they'd still be doing it exactly the same. I would venture to uh, say from Socrates because nothing much changed. It's basically having a professor up there lecture to students. What has changed from a Socratean way of uh, teaching? Yeah, uh, and so there, and so now we now we know there are lots of ways we can do it, and lots of ways we can do it better. Uh, and sadly, it took a pandemic to to rattle it a little bit. You look at all the student debt, uh, student loan debt uh, for a lot of students uh, that had no business going into that space, or should have been much more focused or directed uh, into a better space where they could earn and and have the power to to move up that upward mobility. Uh, and so we got to change the dynamics. We got to challenge everything. So, uh, and this is, we are not in a season where we can tinker around the edges. Uh, this is, uh, we need quantum change in a, in a host of areas. And those that do that are going to thrive and succeed. And to me, that's critical for the country. So Warren Buffett always says that when the tide goes out, you get to see who's swimming naked. So uh, <laughs> COVID really showed us which business models are terribly weak and which ones are extremely robust. So we have a, what they call now, a, I don't know, use a different letter soon but a K-type recovery. Certain businesses like brick and mortar retail is just getting decimated. And then you have Zoom and companies that are just doing tremendously well, Amazon, uh, Facebook, so on and so forth, with the pandemic, they're just doing outstandingly well. 
Now, the, you bring up education, you bring up the university, you bring up the colleges. We had the incentives, from my opinion, in my opinion, placed in the wrong place. The incentives for universities to keep the MSRP, the high sticker price up there because the government was footing the bill. And now you have these people who took classes and took amazing amounts of debt to become a master's in social work, which they'll never make more than eighty dollars to $90,000. The job doesn't pay for more, $100,000. How are they going to pay $300,000 in debt? Did anyone ever sit and figure this out? I think now you brought up a great point. I love it, Boyd, and I want to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, how are we going to change that whole university model or how do you see this university model changing in the next year? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it is. It, the change is, is coming. Actually, the change has already here. happened. It's here. You know, look, just look at the Ivy Leagues, right? They were, they were trying to charge parents the same $60,000. Parents are saying, you got to be freaking crazy. My kids on Zoom, they're not there. Why are you still charging me the same amount of money? The inefficiencies yeah. in, in, the, in the university set, uh, infrastructure are horrendous. They're just amazing. The, the, the fixed costs are just so stupid for today's day and age. So I think yeah. we're, we're, we're not only there, we're past it. I know a lot of kids, because I have um, one, uh, one son in, uh, still in college, and um, he has friends, and, and friends of my other son who are now in graduate school, they're looking, they took the year off. They said, I'm not going to do this Zoom stuff. Let me get real-world experience and intern somewhere. And this is not from regular community colleges. One of them is, uh, is in Warden, and the other one was at Harvard Law. And so you're seeing that brain drain leave that university system. And say, we don't need this anymore. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it really goes all the way back to uh, a great apprentice uh, program, uh, and, and that's really trade where schools. What happen. happened to trade schools? That's you, you right. have a better shot at making a hell of a lot more money. And I, no disrespect to masters of social work, I just bring that up because we know someone who is one, and they struggle and they have a lot of debt. And oh. taking that same person was it, but for whatever reason doesn't want to be a master of social work, become an electrician or a plumber. They're going to make much more money without any debt. That's right. That's, a, that's exactly right. And there's so many options like that. And yet there are so few students uh, who have actually ever sat down and said, okay, this is how much it's going to cost. This is what I'm likely to earn uh, and figure out if the math actually works. I mean, it's, I'm horrible at math, but I can figure out that math, uh, that it, it just doesn't work. And uh, I'll never forget, I was, I was with Senator Lee one time. He was speaking to a, a law school and uh, a student got up and, and asked kind of a self-promoting question. The, the, this, uh, this young kid had just uh, passed the bar and he, he said, so Senator, you know, what, what is your advice to someone who's just passed the bar? And uh, <laughs> I'll never forget, the Senator looked him right in the eye and said, all the training, all the studying, all the work you put in to learn all of those things have positioned you perfectly to be a great apprentice at a law firm. <laughs> and the kid was just crestfallen, you know, he thought he was gonna get this great nugget. Uh, but it, it really is, I, I firmly believe, I've always believed this, uh, that the, the real test uh, for our day and age is what you learn after you get out of school. Uh, the shelf life of a formal education is about 18 months. You get about an 18 month head start. And everything after that is, are you a lifelong learner? That's, uh, that's going to be the key. I was really blessed. I grew up in a family of 11 kids. Uh, my dad was a big reader. And uh, the rule at our house was if you wanted to learn something, you had to read five books about it, Love it. talk to three people who knew about it, and then you had to go do it. And, and that was the model. And uh, that was probably the most important thing I ever learned 
uh, was to love learning. Now, higher education can be great to learn the discipline of learning. That's important. But the only thing that really matters is do you love learning? Uh, David McCullough, one of the great writers of our time, uh, helped so many get into history. Uh, I was amazed to learn. I got to, to talk to him at the Library of Congress. Um, and he talked about being in, in college at, at Yale. And uh, he, had, he hated history. David McCullough hated history. He had to take a history class before he could pass. So he, he said, I went into the big hall. It was all freshmen. I was a senior. Uh, he said, it wasn't even a real professor. It was a graduate student. And he said that graduate student came out and he changed my life in a single sentence. He said, in this class, I will never test you on a date, a time, a location. And David McCullough said it was like the windows blew open and suddenly history became a never ending river of ideas to be explored. Changed his life uh, because he loved learning. He hated memorizing dates and locations and battles and all of those things. Uh, but, it, but it changed him forever. And uh, we need more of that. We need that kind of learning going on, which uh, in a digital age, you can do really easy. Uh, so it's more about channeling and fostering kids than anything else. So maybe that's a great segue for this. Maybe there's a, there's a, a way for big business or any business to start an apprenticeship type program. We call it internship, but that's internships are just, they just suck. What are you, you're getting someone coffee. You know, you're not learning anything. And, Many cases, I, I shouldn't say in blanket, but the in, most internships, really, it's you're getting someone coffee. And I know I'm going to get a lot of calls and emails and stuff, but let's call it what it is. You're not putting someone out brain surgery there. And rightly so. They know, they, know, they know very little. They know very little, and they're coming in there supposed to learn by shadowing or something. Maybe, maybe, I'm just throwing this out there, maybe there's a way for business to take in, and, and this is maybe with government, a partnership with government, where the money that parents are spending, maybe the government subsidizes these businesses to take them into their living and their living classroom, which is the business world or whatever it's about, and let them see what it's like. Because how do you ask a 19-year-old kid, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? I changed 17 ways to Wednesday before I was 19 what I wanted to do. You know, I, I realized I couldn't play, you know, first base for the New York Mets, even though I used to bring my glove every game when we were kids, thinking they'd call me because back in the day there was only 1,500 people in Shea Stadium. We know a lot of fans. But I always thought that was it. By the time I got, uh, you know, I didn't wake up one morning and say I'm going to be a floor trader, you know, that, but that's where I eventually ended up. Uh, maybe that's one idea that's pretty low barrier to entry that any business or anyone who's listening now could just start. Yeah. Yeah. And, we, and we've proven that uh, companies can do that. Uh, you know, why not get a certification, uh, you know, from Apple or Google? Why not uh, go onto, onto the floor and, and actually learn how that thing happens? Uh, the apprenticeship idea is uh, old as time, and it actually works uh, if we'll fully engage it. The biggest challenge and the biggest barrier to that is, is kind of the iron triangle of the, the current universities and their system, the accrediting agencies, and the government. Uh, that is the iron triangle that's preventing real innovation from happening at a much faster pace. There's some good models and some good things that are that are happening there. Uh, but I go back to, to Benjamin Franklin. You know, he had his uh, leather apron society uh, where he would just gather young people uh, in all the different trades. But then he would talk to them uh, about principles. And it wasn't just the principles of, of how to be a, a good carpenter or how to be a good printer. Uh, it was how do you be a good thinker? Uh, how do you become a, a better member of society? Uh, how do you think strategically? 
And, and that's what we really need more of. It's not about uh, it's not about more colleges and universities, even online. Uh, it's about thinking different, thinking better, and having that real world application every day. And how many businesses, how many printing presses did Benjamin Franklin uh, uh, kickstart for others? Yeah, you know, he, exactly. he was he was a worldly guy. He he knew where it was at, and that's why he retires at forty years old. He's a, he's a brilliant man, and he he knows how to leverage his his talents to finding smart people and putting them into business. So yeah. I'm challenging you, Boyd. You have a big newspaper there. Find those five or ten. Started with that, and you know it, I think we just changed the name from internships to apprenticeships. I think that changes everything. Yeah, I agree. It changes a lot. I, I, I don't know if anything. You know, let, let me just move on to one thing that I, the, one of your articles, which I saw. Uh, just recently, I, it just it just smacked me in the head. It was really really good. How do we heal in 2020? And I'm going to quote what you wrote on Friday. Russell M. Nelson, I believe he's 96, right? 96 year old prophet, president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, delivered a message to the world. In the midst of a global pandemic, economic upheaval, and social strife, he extolled the healing power of gratitude. And I'm going to quote what he wrote, you wrote, what, quoting uh, President Nelson. I've concluded that counting our blessings is far better than recounting our problems. I think so it's, true. it's so profound, yet so simple. And I guess that's where the profound truths lie, the simplicity of it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's the, that's the truth with most truth is it's, it's very, very simple. Uh, and with that, that very simple challenge, uh, from President Nelson, uh, he launched uh, millions upon millions of social media posts uh, as people started to just focus on what they were grateful for. Uh, and there is a, I think one of the big threats uh, is ingratitude. Uh, and ingratitude uh, is, uh, is really a, uh, if you ever want to read some really great stuff, William uh, George Jordan, a uh, great writer, uh, 19, early 1900s, uh, and he talked about the the fact that ingratitude was the shortcut to all the other vices. Uh, and when you lose that ability to feel awe and gratitude and wonder uh, that you really start to lose everything else. Uh, and so this very simple healing, uh, there is a healing power uh, to gratitude. As we recognize what we have, it also makes us a, a little more sympathetic and empathetic to those around us. But most important, uh, I found in just focusing on it for the last seven days, uh, not just as a Thanksgiving execution, uh, but in looking at it broader in terms of how do we actually heal, uh, it, it really moves you into some fascinating uh, places and spaces uh, as you start thinking about all the things that we can be grateful for uh, and then what we ought to be doing with that. Uh, because real gratitude always includes action and either sharing it or teaching it uh, or helping another enjoy it themselves. Uh, and those are all really powerful things uh, that I think came out of uh, a really simple plea from, uh, from Russell M. Nelson to the world uh, that, again, spawned millions upon millions of people to just stop for a moment uh, and just be grateful. Uh, I mentioned in the, in the piece, uh, Lee Brower uh, does a, a lot of high-end uh, consulting and, and work for families uh, trying to make sure that their, their wealth perpetuates. And he actually said the biggest reason for wealth not to be passed from generation to generation, even when there's clearly enough for it to just continue in perpetuity, is is not bad investments, is not reckless spending, it's ingratitude. It, it actually breeds something that ultimately uh, undercuts the the principle of, of the whole thing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm spot on. You, you, 
Without gratitude, you can't be, you can't be happy. A, a, gratitude, a person with gratitude and gives thanks is a happier person. Someone who doesn't thank and doesn't count their blessings can never be happy. There's always something that someone else has that they want, and how do you satisfy them? How are they ever happy? No, that's exactly right. And uh, and learning to be content with uh, with what you do have and recognizing how blessed we all are, uh, especially in this country, uh, that just taking time to to pause and reflect on that uh, is is a transformational process. Uh, I know it is for me that when I start thinking in terms of gratitude first, uh, sometimes we kind of save that for the end. Oh yeah, I'm thankful for for this and that. Uh, when you put gratitude first, you see everything differently. Uh, you actually see better. Hey, look, you know, uh, my, my grandmother, she used to say, she lived a very long life. She said, every day above ground is a happy one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you just get you just get out of bed every morning and you could walk and you, and you could just think of how many people can't do that. And then how many people yeah. don't have a home? And, every, you know, yeah. I want to tell you something, which, which my, my family makes fun of me, but I, I just find it, I, I marvel at every time. Can you imagine we can turn on our faucets in our home and have something that, most people throughout the world can't have, and that's clean water. Yeah. Bill Gates is spending billions of dollars and having all sorts of contests to figure out how to make sanitation, uh, fecal matter, urine, and everything to be biodegradable so it doesn't cause so many to die from diseases. And we have yeah. toilets in our homes. Until the 1920s and 30s, most homes didn't have a toilet. My, you know, it's, it's just absolutely amazing what we have as Americans. Clean water and sanitation. Let's take it from there. <laughs> we should be having a happy day. Our, 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 our infants are not dying from, from all sorts of diseases that affect third world countries. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, how do we get back to that? How do, how do we get people to appreciate all that they have, especially yeah, living I, in this country? Yeah, I, I think uh, you know, we, we are surrounded by so much abundance uh, and, and recognizing that, uh, even just going through what, what you just uh, rattled off there, Charles, in terms of, uh, of water and sanitation, uh, that, that's a good day. Uh, it's an amazing thing. And then you start getting into the subtleties of everything that we have. The fact that you and I can be on uh, opposite sides of the country and, and have this conversation today and then share it with millions of people uh, beyond that uh, is extraordinary. I think how powerful that is. Just imagine uh, you and I growing up. I think we're more or less the same age. As kids, do you imagine, uh, you remember, I, I know I remember, and I'm sure you do as well. As kids, we used to have hours and hours of arguments on Joe DiMaggio's batting average in 1951. And it was decided by the old wise men in the community who happened to know that. Now, you just look at your iPhone, you have or smartphone, you have the knowledge of the universe at your fingertips, and you don't even need your fingertips. Ask Siri or a Google, and you get that all that information here. And I just said a Google, and all of a sudden my computer just uh, tried to respond, <laughs> which is absolutely it's like having a genie on your on your shoulder. And yeah. yet we have people who complain about the literacy in this country. We have people who are uneducated in terms of history, and I think that's where you get the 1619 project, where we're yeah. so illiterate about our founding because nobody took the time to learn anything about it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've always said that a, a society that uh, forgets and loses its ability to, to be thankful uh, and to, to reflect on that history is, is in danger of losing a great deal more. And uh, I think that's, that's part of what we've had. We've, we've lost that connection. Everybody wants to be part of a story, uh, which is one of the interesting things that's come out of this whole pandemic is that feeling of just we've never been more connected in the history of the world 
And yep. yet we have more and more people who feel disconnected. Uh, and it's because they've lost that connection to people. They've lost connection to the story. They've lost connection to, to who they are and where they come from. Uh, because everybody, everybody wants to be part of a winning story. Uh, it's why we, you know, wear the brand name clothes we wear, drive the cars we drive, uh, the groups and associations that we have. Everybody wants that connection. And in our race and chase for everything else and for things that we have been told and conditioned exist outside of what we already have, we're losing the very connection uh, that we need, the, the real source of all of that, uh, which again goes back to family, community, uh, and those things that happen on a very, very local level. And so getting people to slow down and, and realize that uh, it's been fascinating for me to watch. I've, I've seen people around the world who suddenly said, you know what we did this week? We had dinner as a family. <laughs> and, uh, and it was like this big novel idea. Yeah. Uh, as, as I mentioned, I, uh, I grew up in a in family of 11 and we had this great tradition. My parents were the best at this. Uh, every Saturday night at five o'clock, all 11 kids were expected to be at home. And uh, we would sit around. The, we had a, a big table. It was like a big cafe counter. And uh, my dad would, would make pancakes. And uh, Charles, I don't know if you've ever had pancakes in a large group before. Uh, they do not come in stacks. Uh, that was a radical concept for me. In fact, uh, we, we had the joke at my house that uh, eating pancakes with the Mathesons was like the early stages of labor pains. Uh, you get them one at a time and about 10 minutes apart. Uh, and, and yet it was during that time when we were waiting for those precious pancakes to come our way that my, my parents were sharing things with us kids. More importantly, they were asking questions and listening uh, to what we had to say. And for years and years, that was always the, tra the tradition. And even after most of us were married and gone, uh, we always found a, a good reason to slip by mom and dad's at five o'clock on a Saturday because we wanted that connection. We wanted to be part of that. And we need more of that in the country today. Uh, those kinds of traditions in nuclear families and extended families and communities, uh, there, there's nothing more powerful than that. It is the essence of what the country's really all about. Great, great message. Boyd Matheson, you're a champ. Boyd, where could uh, listeners find you on a weekly basis, daily basis? Where, they where do they look for you? They can go to Deseret.com, D-E-S-E-R-E-T, Deseret.com, or they can follow me follow me on Twitter, at Boyd Matheson. Beautiful. I, I know I do. I've started since we started speaking a few weeks ago. I love your articles. They're simple. They're to the point. Uh, simple English, simple message, like your dad making pancakes. Simple, great, really great stuff. Boyd, thanks so much. God bless you, and keep fighting the good fight. You're doing outstanding. Hey, thanks, Charles. Privilege to be with you. Appreciate what you do and especially how you do it. Uh, you're making a difference. Greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.